Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the Editor-in-Chief of the Network, and today I'm very happy to say that we have Dale Wright on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific book, What is Buddhist Enlightenment? I don't do a lot of interviews anymore because I spend most of my time managing the network, but this book came across my desk and I said, you know, I do want to know what Buddhist Enlightenment is. (laughs) This is a perennial question in Buddhism. And uh, Dale has some answers for us, which is really terrific. So, Dale, thank you for writing the book, and thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me, Marshall. Absolutely. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, um, just briefly, I'm uh, a professor of religious studies and Asian studies at Occidental College in Los Angeles, where I've been teaching for over 30 years. And um, my area of expertise is Buddhist philosophy, and uh, with a focus on East Asia, China, or Japan, but I'm interested in Buddhism generally, especially in the contemporary application of Buddhism to us, to our culture and time. I'm very interested in that as well, so this should be a good discussion. Can you tell us why you wrote What is Buddhist Enlightenment? Yes. <laughs> You know, at some point a few years ago, I realized that one theme that pervades really all the different articles and books I've written over the years is enlightenment. So no matter what I'm writing about on the surface, what I'm really writing about is enlightenment. So this book takes that theme on directly. And although it has chapters that go on very different dimensions of enlightenment, uh, every chapter is a focus on some aspect of Buddhist enlightenment, and the question really at the, at the part of it is, what does that mean for us? You know, what, what can we take out from that um, thought of enlightenment? Mm-hmm. So let's begin the discussion with some, I guess I would call them orientational questions. Most people know of Buddhism uh, as a religion, probably an Eastern religion. You have a lot to say about that. Could you discuss that idea that it is a religion? And in what way it is and is not? Okay, um, certainly. Um, yeah, Buddhism is really a, a whole cultural milieu. It's it's a range of elements of culture. So um, we can say it's a religion, but really in all of the countries in Asia where you find Buddhism, it is an aesthetic tradition. It's a tradition of dance and art and music and writing and literature and um, even politics and economics. So, but it is at its core a religion. Now, um, we can take that to mean, well, it's a tradition where there are monks and nuns and institution that would be Buddhism. Um, but more importantly is to think, well, what, what is it at the very heart of religion? And so my answer to that is that religion is a response to the big questions about the meaning of life and death. And Buddhism is one such response, but there are obviously many others. So that's at the very core of Buddhism. And if you read the early Buddhist sutras, that's what they're grappling with. Um, what is the meaning of my life? How do I live well in view of that? What's, what's the way for me to move forward in my life? And those large orienting questions really are at the core of every religion, even though religion then becomes everything from ritual to various kinds of practice and has long history. Still, the, the guiding light is that central question. Mm-hmm. Well, in the pre-interview, we discussed Stephen Batchelor, who's uh I guess I would call him one of the foremost Buddhist thinkers, at least in the United States. I don't know about elsewhere. I have read him and I have listened to him. And one of the things he points out to Western audiences who might have a misconception about Buddhism is that in, let's just broadly call it Asia or other places where Buddhism is practiced, it it is a religion in the full-blown sense. And I think the expression that he uses is it has all the smells and bells and everything else that you would expect out of religion. Here in the United States, it's somewhat different, though. Could you discuss that? A bit. Yes, I, I can. Um, yeah, it 
it came to the United States and to Europe and to the West as an alternative tradition, right? So that the people like uh, many of us who became interested in Buddhism from the 60s through the 70s, 80s, 90s, and continues today, really um, are interested in Buddhism as something different. And so um, many uh, Western Buddhists reject what they see as overt kinds of ritual um, or everything that smacks of the kind of religion that they used to practice, whether they're Jewish or Christian or whatever. Um, so it came to us in that way, and although there are certainly traditions, you know, Tibetan and Japanese and Thai and so on, where all of the particulars of the tradition get carried forward into the West, um, only some people are interested in that direct transfer of the tradition, and many others want Buddhism as an alternative that fits the kind of secular democratic culture that we live in today. So um, just in terms of uh, political authority within a religion, the kinds of hierarchy that are assumed in traditional religions everywhere, but especially in Asian religions, in patriarchies and so on, um, all of those traditions of hierarchy are thrown into question in Western Buddhism in one way or another. And so we're getting interesting new forms of Buddhism emerging in the West. And so Stephen Batchelor um, catches on to this and thinks of it as secular Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this expression, secular Buddhism, you have a lot to say about that. And it is a controversial issue. And I guess I would say that since you believe and argue persuasively that it, it is about these big questions, that it, it is at its core a religion, but it isn't like a religion that we normally see in the United States. Right. Yeah. Because religion comes from the past, right? It's handed down to us. So contemporary practices, what we do that um, that touches the core of our being, and that's about the, the meaning of life and death, um, we don't think of that as religion. But in the biggest definition of religion, that's it, however that manifests in actual practice. So, um, so rather than think of religion as the kind of um, incense and ritual and so on that was practiced in the past, um, if we transfer that and just um, open the question about religion and think of it as that pursuit of the deepest meaning of our existence, then we get closer to what we're about religiously. So Stephen Batchelor is aware of that, even though he's calling for secular Buddhism. Um, if you read carefully, he's um, he's a deeply spiritually oriented person, and um, uh, he's quite aware of the fact that um, Buddhism, shorn of its connections to these big questions, is 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 vacant. It's not really Buddhism. So even um, his Secular Buddhism has a deep religious dimension to it, from my point of view. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's um, well stated in the book, by the way, for those of you who are going Thank to read it. Thank you. Um, now, here's a relatively simplistic understanding of Buddhism, and it's the one that I was taught, and this is largely by listening to Dharma talks on okay. podcasts like this one, <laughs> yeah, and talking to some other practitioners, and that is that uh, you often hear uh, this statement, that Buddha came to the world and he said, I teach an end of suffering and only an end of suffering. In your book, there's a lot of other things. Yes. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of other things. And Buddhism is much is a, is a rich tradition that affects all aspects of life. But um, you can take that that statement from the Buddha and see it everywhere. I mean, we we suffer in all aspects of our life, and. Um, and to to teach the end of suffering is huge, right? Um, the end of our suffering politically, the end of our suffering economically, all of those things can be included. So um, early on in the Buddha Sutras, a distinction is made that's really important between pain that we all experience when we break an arm or stub a toe or get embarrassed or, or criticized or something, and suffering, on the other hand, which is the self-cause part of the, the misery that we experience. 
So in that sense, suffering is the added pain that we add to the pain that goes with being human and being finite. And so an end of suffering is an end of a mental orientation that continues to injure ourselves after something has happened that is in some way externally injurious to us. So, um, so suffering can come to an end if by suffering we, we mean the kind of added pain that we unknowingly pile on whenever we get hurt some way. So if somebody um, criticizes me, if somebody maybe even in a mean-spirited way, and I take that image and I repeat it, which I do, you know, everybody does this, and I run it through my head over and over again, and I build resentment, and I build hatred for the person who said this, and I hurt myself over and over by repeating that image in my mind. That's really like a reverse form of meditation. It's a negative version of meditation that is instilling that pain more deeply and more deeply into my psyche. So if I can learn through kind of kind of cognitive behavioral self-therapy that um, I don't need to do that to myself, that I can turn that around and just experience the pain and not add the suffering, then I can be liberated from that. Well, Buddhism is a huge part of Buddhism is about eliminating that added suffering. Mm-hmm. I hope that's clear enough. That is very clear, actually. Um, this gets us right in the question of what uh, the, the essential, well, let me put that differently. One, one of the things I think, and you correct me if I'm wrong, that Buddhists say is that you kind of have to have the right view of the world in order to begin to end your suffering and achieve some sort of enlightenment. Now, we haven't defined enlightenment yet, and I don't think we probably will, yeah. but... <laughs> <laughs> Put me on the spot. Yeah, not going to do that. So uh, you mentioned a couple of, I guess, foundational principles, almost a worldview that, that are important yeah. to enlightenment. And I'm speaking here just to direct you uh, about the notion that um, everything is connected in a kind of strong sense. Yeah, yeah. Right. So there are a couple of fundamental principles of Buddhism that um, are there in all forms of Buddhism. Buddhism proliferates and develops and evolves in all kinds of directions brilliantly in many cases. But uh, right at the core are a couple of principles that are really important. So, so one of those is impermanence, that a failure to recognize that everything's changing will be a problem in your life. I mean, you really have to recognize that. And that, that impermanence is, is, is ongoing. It just, it will always occur. Um, another principle dependent arising is that idea of interconnected, that's interconnectedness that you just mentioned, that all things are what they are dependent on other things being what they are. So, um, so a tree is the exact tree that it is dependent on not just the basic elements like um, air and water and a seed and earth and so on, but also the particular circumstances that it either thrives or doesn't thrive in. So it's completely dependent on other things. So that's important because what that is is really a recognition of interdependence. Nothing is what it is on its own. Everything is exactly what it is in connection to other things. So when those other things change, the thing that you're thinking about will also change. And that that meditation is really at the center of a Buddhist uh, sort of cognitive conceptual meditation that recognizing that things are what they are in context, in relation, and always in process and in flux um, really puts us on our toes, right? We can't be isolating things and we can't think of them as just what they are permanently. Everything's in motion. Everything's connected to other things which are also in motion. Mm-hmm. So those principles are really always there in Buddhist meditation and always there in Buddhist philosophy. And so any conception of enlightenment that we would want to formulate would take those basic ideas into consideration from a Buddhist point of view. 
Mm-hmm. It's interesting because in the in the Christian tradition, at least as I was taught it as a, a Lutheran a long, long time ago, uh-huh. there was this doctrine of continuing revelation. That is, uh-huh. it's not done. You may think it's done, but it is not done. And God, this is the Christian God here, the Lutheran God, is always yeah. revealing new things to us, and we have to adjust on the fly. Yeah, well, okay, that's that's a similar principle. Yeah, I think, I think it yeah. actually is. That's um, right. So this gets us right to uh, the origin of suffering again, and you correct me if I'm wrong, and that is part of it has to do with clinging is the way it's usually translated. I don't know what the original is in poly or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh-huh. And that is holding on to a notion that things are uh, fixed and independent when they are yeah. never fixed and independent. Yeah. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. Clinging, grasping. You know, we, if you... All of us, if we look at our experience, we see that we're always clinging in some way. You know, things are unnerving. Life is awkward and hard. So we're always holding on to something. And um, the, um, the the Buddhist advice or admonition here is that the more we can begin to let go and relax and um the, the, the more we can just not be clinging on for security, um, the more we'll be able to adjust to what's passing through our lives and to really deal with it in a way that's, that's healthy or wholesome, as it's put in the Buddhist tradition. So, um, so that kind of grasping is ever-present in our lives, but working our way through Buddhist meditation, one, one thing that we're doing is learning to release, learning to let go, learning that improvisation is always going to be called upon. So although we train and we discipline ourselves and we work and we work um, to set ourselves up to respond well when the time comes, when the time comes, that kind of spontaneity is is really the showcase of enlightenment. Mm-hmm. So a Zen master, for example, is is famous for being able to improvise, being able to make it up on the spot, because you don't know what's coming, right? You don't know what's about to happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one way I've heard this ability to deal with things as they happen in all their contingency and um, changefulness, if I can make up a word, uh, yeah. is that you... The, the Buddhist tries to deal with situations not in terms of right and wrong, but uh, more in terms of skillfulness. You're skillful. Uh-huh. In, am I right about that? Skillful. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not to say that there aren't right and wrongs sure. in the world, but yeah, to be skillful in relating to things uh, means that it is ingrained. You embody it. It's in your hands. It's in your mind. And so it naturally flows out. You know, right or wrong tends to direct us back to a set of rules that we then have to get from memory and we have to apply to a case. And we, yes, we do that. There, there are rules that we do follow. But um, to think in terms of skills that we develop and embody, like a, a skill of a potter or the skill of an athlete, skill of a dancer, um, or the skill of, you know, an, or, an orator, or the skill of a plumber or an auto mechanic, somebody who can move fluidly and smoothly in a certain context and sense what the right thing to do is, just mm-hmm. sense that. Mm-hmm. So that, that skill is really important. One great phrase for that in later Buddhism is skill in means. Mm-hmm. So that your, your means of doing things are, you develop a skill. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I know that an, another uh, one of the people that give these Dharma talks, I, I don't remember who it was. It was Tara Branch or somebody. I don't know. Uh-huh. But uh, she said, or Gil Franzal or another one of these people uh, said that th- this word practice, we don't pay enough attention to it, really. We, we tend to think of practice in a ritual sense. But what this means is sort of practice like you practice your golf swing. You get better at it over time. That's right. That's right. Everything you do, you get better by doing it. So um, even simple things like friendliness. If you don't practice friendliness, you won't be friendly. So you are what you do. Mm -hmm. Um, And that principle is really basic to Buddhist meditation. So meditation is, in some sense, in many cases, it's pre-meditation. You are engaged in a rehearsal of, okay, in situations, can I relax? Can I be unselfish or selfless? 
Can I be this or that? Well, if you practice that skill and develop it over time, then chances are, yes, you'll be better at it at least. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not a matter of having it or not having it. it. These are all matters of degree, and therefore, so is enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're, we're awakened in various ways and to various extents. But, um, but practice is the key. So practice is something that um, to be, if you do it explicitly, that is you do it um, consciously and intentionally and you choose a practice based on a conception of enlightenment, based on an ideal, then that practice will be one that really affects you in the right ways. You can, you can think of practice as everything we do. You know, you, you practice um, sports when you do it and you practice walking every time you walk, but you, you aren't necessarily doing those things consciously and intentionally and with the idea of sculpting yourself in a particular way. So the extent to which that practice is explicit is, um, is a deeper form of meditation. Mm-hmm. And this, this brings us to a, another, I think, basic Buddhist concept, and that is awareness. And I always add awareness of what is actually going on versus what your mind is trying to tell you. Right, right, yeah, which basically is what we call, what should we call it openness or am I open to what the what's coming into me perceptually? Am I open to what you're asking me? Am I open to what people's behavior is telling me, or am I just reading and onto it? Am I projecting onto it mm-hmm. so that awareness is is key. Often in Buddhist meditation, the word awareness is contrasted with attention, where attention is your focus, right? When you're, mm-hmm. you're reading something or you're, you're putting together some tiny part on a machine, your attention is riveted there, whereas awareness is the broad, open sense of things. When you're walking, do you, are you aware of the birds flying in the sky? Are you aware of the vegetation around you? Or are you lost in thought? Mm-hmm. That kind of open awareness is the broad sense and attention is the focused, concentrated, nothing else matters kind of uh, orientation. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad you mentioned the word self because this leads us to what I think is, uh, I don't know about objectively, but um, many people think uh-huh. is a confusing doctrine in Buddhism, and that is the doctrine right. of no self. Right. Yeah, when I first learned about Buddhism as a very young man, that was that was the big, that was the stumbling block, in fact. I, I couldn't get it, and um, it just seemed wrong to me, uh, because um, other religious traditions tend to think of a soul or a deep self, and the self who you really are, um, beyond the the changes that go through body and mind so that the 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 soul or self is as a permanent thing like um entity that well not in a physical sense but in a spiritual sense that's beyond all the particularities buddhists reject that and that um that sense of things um gives rise to a different way to behave in meditation. But the so it's called the no self teaching from early Buddhism, carries all the way through Buddhism, um, is basically the teaching that you are, um, early Buddhists say, the coming together of five different components, um, your body and your thoughts and your will, your self consciousness, your perception. Um, and these these elements are always changing. You are the particular state of these elements at any given moment of time, and they're always changing, right? They're, yes, there are patterns, and the patterns have some staying power, but even those patterns are changing over time. Mm-hmm. So what that leads to spiritually and ethically also is selflessness, the sense that um, it's not because we're interconnected beings related to our family and our community and everything that exists, all sentient beings and non-sentient beings. Um, there is no, the, the primary obligation then is not self-security, 
but is some kind of other relationship to all of these elements around us. Mm-hmm. So it, um, it's one of the teachings in Buddhism that takes time to get, but when you, once you begin to get it and benefit from the kind of selflessness that it inculcates, it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Uh, you remind me of a conversation I had with a very wise person in a different spiritual tradition. Uh-huh. I was thinking uh-huh. of Buddhism when he said this, but I was explaining to him something that had happened to me. And, and he said, I said, well, what do you think? And he said, well, I think that the first thing you need to think about is whether it actually happened to you or not, or whether it just happened. Right. No possessiveness. I said, I think I see what you mean. It just happened. I attribute that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Yeah, and and I should say, in all spiritual traditions of that have evolved to any point of depth, and that this is most um, selflessness is one of the primary virtues, right? And no matter which tradition, but it's it's different in Buddhism. This is an interesting distinction because. There is no self. It's not that you just don't be selfish, um, but yes, you you sort of have or are the self. In Buddhism, um, there isn't some central permanent um, being that is you. You are part of the larger process of flux and change and interconnection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one so of the things you, I was going to say, one of the things you discuss in the book is the way in which language gets into in, in the way of this sort of understanding. And I was about to mention the chapter of the book, which I think brings together a lot of what you said, and this is about uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's essay um, about the Rodney King beating. And, yes. and and he has to, he's forced to say, I, a lot, I, I am Rodney King, and I am the person who beat Rodney King. But there's yeah. no I, really. You see yeah. what I mean? But anyway, yeah. could you talk a little yeah. bit about uh, that essay? You, you, sure. I think it sums up yeah. a lot of what you have to say. Yeah, well, uh, it goes back. I was here in Los Angeles uh, when that historic event happened, which, uh, as we now see, um, has happened, has always happened. Um, mm-hmm. Police beatings, police shootings, violence um, coming out of police departments. But that was the first one caught on video. And within days, everybody on the planet who has a television had seen that. And it was, it was shocking. You know, it was truly shocking. So there I am reading the Los Angeles Times in the morning. I'm a little bit sleepy. And I see this article. It's called, We Are the Beaters, We Are the Beaten. And I think, what in the world is this about? And I start reading it and I realize, wait, wait this is Buddhist. So I go, I look back. Oh, yes, it's by Thich Nhat Hanh. <laughs> Thich Nhat Hanh happened to have been um, in California, uh, not in the time of the beating, but following that when the trials were going on or shortly after. And um, he was he was just talking about what's wrong because in the newspaper every day there were claims fire the chief of police or throw these cops in jail and so the focus was on those particulars but Thich Nhat Hanh was able to see and to say clearly and brilliantly I was amazed and impressed that really it's a much bigger problem right that it's our problem it's not their problem the bad cops or the bad police chief it is our way of living in forgetfulness and unmindfulness that has created violence. Even those of us, or especially those of us who live in very safe parts of the city where these kinds of things don't happen. Um, so the article, as Technohan say, I experienced myself when I saw those videos as the guy being beaten. And then I thought of myself as the policemen who were beating the the person on the ground, Rodney King. And then he goes on to talk about um, other people who's, you know, I pay taxes, I support the Los Angeles Police Department, I pay for their protection. I'm just as responsible as anybody for um, what kind of people we have in the police department, what they do. I'm responsible for the crime in the city in that I let it go on and I practice the kinds of self-concern and unconcern about the larger world that allows our society to be violent and to be out of control. So um, the, the, short, the short newspaper article was really revelatory to me. I took it to be a contemporary Buddhist sutra. You know, you know the word sutra means Buddhist sacred text. 
And this is as good as it gets. Mm-hmm. So, and so the first essay in the book, What is Buddhist Alignment, is um, really my trying to analyze and take apart that little Thich Nhat Hanh piece and talk about it in relationship to Buddhism. Because really in the, in the newspaper article, he's not so much talking about Buddhism. He's just talking as a Buddhist about the problems. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That we are somehow enmeshed in this, that we're, we're all, uh, guilty is a very strong word, but we, we all are part of the causes and conditions that brought this about. That's, that's right. Yeah, so he ends the little essay by article by saying, um, it's our problem, you know, it's not their problem. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to fix it. We mm-hmm. not call upon them to fix it. And, and this raises one of the, I think, central Mm, trying to think of the right word here. I want to say criticism because that's the tradition in which I was taught. That's yeah. what happens when you go to graduate school. They teach you to yeah. criticize stuff. Critique. <laughs> yeah. And that is, when you try to explain Buddhism to people, they, they often say to themselves, well, that's all very good, but uh, if everyone lived like that, then no one would do anything. That is to say, <laughs> yeah, if everybody was worried about ending their own suffering and yeah. observing things yeah. neutrally and trying to reach yeah. equanimity, well, yeah. who's going to put those yeah. cops in jail? That's right. Yeah, that's right. and this gets right so, to the heart of your book, I think. Yeah, that's right. So um, it's um, at some point along the path of practice, the task for a Buddhist is to realize that it's not my suffering. So you might start out where I'm going to do this because it's an end to my suffering. But the whole, all of the principles of Buddhism about interconnection and no self and, and many other ideas are, are really explaining and laying out a conception of the world that's not built that way. So, um, so it's not, to seek an end to my suffering, it's to seek an end to suffering and to do that through involvement in my own life and involvement in the society. So, um, so in one of the essays, in fact, the one you just mentioned, I, I talk about the, um, the Buddhist image of Vimalakirti, who is a Buddhist lay person saint. So he's not a monk. He's not, not a nun. He's, um, he's somebody who works in the schools, volunteers his time. He spends times, uh, he spends his time in public hearings, uh, listening to the politician. He spends time with the kids and the old people. He works in the old people's home. He does everything he can to eliminate the suffering in the society on the premise that his suffering and their suffering are ultimately indistinguishable, that they go together. So, so the path of practice leads towards that insight, even if the place where you might begin is to, you know, be worrying about your own suffering, mm-hmm. which is, you know, not a bad place to start. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I've talked about this before on the show or when I've done interviews, but there's a kind of, it's a startling parallel between um, this teaching that in your later Buddhist practice, you will devote yourself to helping others to end your own suffering and what you find in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you can be a member, I'm not sure what you are. I have been for many, many years. And Uh when, as you approach step 12, you end up going talking to a lot of people in prisons and things. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And you stop drinking and you feel better, but now you're going to go out and you're going to, Talk to Help people, others because they're yeah. suffering too. Right, exactly. That's, yeah, that's, that's exactly that's, right. Yeah. That's pretty much what the latter yeah, steps and, say. Uh, um, um, the prayer that said in Alcoholic Anonymous. Um, um, the serenity is, prayer. The serenity prayer from the, actually from a Christian theologian yes, going right. way back uh-huh. into the middle part of the 20th century is is a brilliant it is, um, yeah. prayer, it yeah. Is, yeah, and it, it it there's a lot of wisdom contained in that prayer, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and many people say it, you know, not as a prayer, you're not praying for anything, but you're saying it as a meditation, right? Mm-hmm. It's uh, you're just in, reciting that in hopes of coming to further embody it and have it in you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, w- one of the, the things that uh, I appreciate about Buddhism is that it um, it recognizes people who have reached a certain stage of enlightenment, and it says try to be like them. Um, yeah. 
and I think that's very, very useful to me. I know in my own life, I've, I've, in my bad old life, I, I had models and I followed them, and that did not work out well for me. <laughs> and yeah. then I found yeah. some good ones. Yeah. And the chapter of the book that really fascinated me was someone who's very highly regarded, if controversial, uh, in the Buddhist community of the United States is uh, Mizumi Roshi. Yeah. Uh-huh. I was talking to a friend of mine earlier at a faculty meeting and I said, yeah, I was reading the book, I was reading your book and I said, you know, it's not very often when you get to, to read about an actual drunken master. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> like, you've seen the movie, yep. but this is a real yep. drunken master. This guy really, yep. he had an alcohol yep. problem and lots of other things. And you have he some had very, an alcohol problem. Yeah, you have some really interesting things to say about how we should regard him. Could you tell us about his life and, and yeah. experience? Yeah, I, he was uh, because he was the Zen master of the Zen Center of Los Angeles. I knew him, and in fact, I studied with him for a period of time, so I knew him very well. Wow. Um, although I was hardly one of his close associates, um, but I admired him. I mean, he was somebody who you could just look at and watch him move and speak, and a deep kind of compassion radiated out from him. He was a, an impressive human being, funny, you know, great sense of humor. Uh, witty in all kinds of ways, and profound. Um, so um, here's this obvious Zen master. He was at the, his height uh, of his life in the early 80s, I would say. He was, uh, after the death of Shunryu Suzuki, he might have been the most important, most famous Zen master in the world at that particular moment. And um, then uh, something happened. A couple of things happened. It was disclosed that he had uh, had affairs with a couple of his disciples, women students. And although, yes, this was the time of a sexual liberation, that didn't go over well at all. It was thought to be a huge mistake, and I regard it as a huge mistake. Um, Maizumi Roshi, um, Roshi means Zen master, was married and he had children, and these were students, right? That's that's a boundary that ought to be kept sacred. <laughs> and uh, he didn't. And then his followers uh, in the Zen tradition there began to connect that to that mistake to his fondness for alcohol and began to wonder whether, in fact, he had an alcohol problem. And um, he confessed these things and admitted that, in fact, maybe he did have an alcohol problem um, and went off into an alcohol rehabilitation center and came back shortly thereafter. But it was really the demise for a period of time of the Zen Center of Los Angeles, which had been this vibrant, huge, growing, influential um, center of spiritual practice where people were coming from all over the world to study there. And um, then it began to throw doubts on the authenticity of Mayazumi's enlightenment, right? Was this guy really a Zen master? How could he make mistakes? Could he be an alcoholic? Um, so the point of my essay is that, um, that if we reify enlightenment, if we take awakening to be a total and complete revelation of absolute truth and perfection, uh, we're always going to be disappointed because the people who attain some degree or state of enlightenment are always human, right? They're always mm-hmm. finite. They're always vulnerable. They have needs too. They have backgrounds. They, to use the Buddhist principle, arise dependent on particular factors. They are who they are based on a particular life, and and not all facets of that are going to be in the state of perfection. Perfection is impossible to attain. Mm-hmm. So the the point of the article is that we need to humanize these human beings, right? We can't hold them on a pedestal. And there are certainly other, um, not just Zen masters, but Buddhist teachers throughout the United States who had some problems. And eventually, you're scrutinized to such an extent that somebody's going to find something wrong, and in all Almost every case, they do, and sometimes the problems are significant. Mm-hmm. So, um, so humanizing the the image, uh, understanding the limitations of enlightenment, not making it out to be this absolute perfection, uh, is an important evolution or maturity in our sense of things as Buddhists. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, they're like saint lives where you get to read all about the saints, really. 
You see what that's I mean? Right. <laughs> you get the, that's yeah, right. You get the dirty yeah, laundry problem. too. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's easy to somebody who is in the 12th century, and you know, there's very little information about them. You just assume they're perfect. Yeah. Well, chances yeah. are, not so much. <laughs> yeah. The story uh, of, um, by the way, I should say, has anyone written a biography of Mezumi? No, um, there are snippets all over the place, but. Um, um, in part, that was what I was doing in this little chapter. And I was going to say, you know, I, I think that would make a, little... a great book. I don't know if you're thinking about your next project, but uh, I would really yeah. like to read that. Um, because Yeah, you know, so would I. I hope somebody else does it, somebody <laughs> who, who knows more than I do. <laughs> it's funny because when I was reading the chapter, it reminded me very much of a friend of mine um, who I've known for, I don't know, 30-some years now, and he's a person that I met uh, 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 while I was in school, and and of all the people I'd ever met, I said to myself, you know, I really want what he has. Uh, he, he's much uh, beloved by everyone. He's a brilliant guy. He's humble. Always has a smile on his face. He, he just does seem to exude this kind of, he, I'd say he's a very good human being. Yeah. And recently he had a misstep, let's put it that way, a very severe one um, that none uh-huh. of us knew about. Um, and, and, you know, I, I guess I, I saw my experience with him and, in what Mizumi is going, it hasn't really changed my opinion of this person. I still think he's a wonderful human being, but he's yeah. a human being. <laughs> yeah, no, he's a human being. Yeah, and that's a good that's a good growing up for all of us to do. Yeah, is, you know, yeah. yeah although that, you know, to go around sort of critically looking for what's wrong, yeah. you know, that's a problem too. Yeah, no, that you is, know, it's really important to appreciate the greatness, appreciate the skills that are there. And yeah, there's going to be other ones that are missing or in deficient in some respect. But what can you appreciate about everyone? Everybody has some element of brilliance about them, if you probe deeply enough. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think as a historian, as someone who has professionally, that's in air quotes, taught history to students for a long time, one of the things I always point out to them is, is that, sure, you can go back into the past and you can find uh, your hero's foibles. And that's a lot of fun. You know, Abraham yeah. Lincoln was a racist, full stop. He did not yeah. believe that African Americans were equal to white people. He did not. Yeah. But, yeah. but, and this is a huge but, he was way ahead of his time in a lot of yeah. other ways. Yeah. Yeah. So we should uh, take him uh, for what he was, which was a person living in a certain yeah. set of causes and conditions at a certain time. They've changed. That's right. That's right. Those those have changed or are yeah. changing. Yeah, that's right. What's going on now is just huge. Yeah, that's right. So um, I, I thought it was a great story. And this leads to another chapter in the book that I found fascinating, and I didn't know anything about this, and that is the criticism of the uh, Japanese uh, Zen masters during wartime. I didn't know anything right. about them. Could you tell that story? Yeah. Um, in every culture that goes to war, um, you need spiritual leadership. You need the support of those who are sort of the the heart and soul of the of the nation. And so, every time a nation goes to war, you go the leaders go to the spiritual leaders and say, you know, lead us to war. And in Japan, what that meant was the great Zen masters were called upon to um, summons the young men of Japan to train for war and to train to be fearless, uh, to be beyond life and death, a sense of don't be afraid, deep courage and uh, loyalty and discipline, all of these aspects that are part of Zen Buddhism. And um, so after the war then, after the Zen masters pretty much all did that, after the war there was a criticism that began to develop and that were, came to uh, the fore just, oh, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago in a, an important book by uh, an Australian Buddhist teacher, a Zen Buddhist teacher, saying that um, really the tradition faltered. The Zen masters were called upon to um, to train boys to go kill Buddhists and other non-Buddhists in other countries. Um, they were taught to revere the nation and the emperor and to not ask any questions. And the Zen masters were pretty much guilty of not raising any ethical questions about what was going on. And that was in the early stages of the war when Japanese imperialism, the Japanese were invading other countries in Asia in order to garner the resources they thought they needed to have to withstand Western imperialism, which led to the attack on Pearl Harbor. Anyway, so my um, my part in this was to take that critique of these Zen masters and say, 
okay, why did that happen? And that's, that's what, the question that was raised in the book. How could Zen masters who are enlightened have um, not cared at all about the killing of innocent people in China? How could they have taught that loyalty over morality was was much more important. And so my answer to that was that the Zen tradition had itself evolved in a direction where moral training wasn't really part of what they did. That is, by moral training, I mean uh, engaging in rigorous debate and training in questions of right and wrong and in train in um, in inculcating a kind of compassion for others. Zen was, uh, especially at that point, but all through its history, about this this deep insight into selflessness and impermanence and the emptiness of all things in a special meaning of emptiness there. where um, So that insight, which is brilliant in Zen, and I admire it in all kinds of ways, um, was the focus of Zen training, and very little attention was paid to concern for others or compassion, involvement in the community. All of those kind of things were subordinated to this one enlightenment insight, this one moment of awakening where you are become an enlightened Zen master. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So my um, the thesis of that chapter is that if you don't train in morality, you can't expect moral outcomes. <laughs> that every, everything is what it is dependent on what's in the background. Mm-hmm. So if you don't practice something, don't expect to be good at it. You, know, mm-hmm. you don't practice tennis, you're not going to be good at it. You don't practice moral concern and, and deep asking questions about the the... The, what's right or wrong in a particular situation or what's skillful or unskillful, you're not going to be good at making those decisions. And so the, uh, I just agreed that the Zen masters were not good at that. Um, and that, that, you know, a, a few of them were, but for the most part, not. And, mm-hmm. and that was a lack of that dimension in Zen Buddhism mm-hmm. that, that I thought in the larger Buddhist tradition, morality is an essential component but that just gets set aside to some extent in Zen. That's being corrected now, and especially in global Zen Buddhism as it's developing. And there's a lot of attention to that. Um, in fact, social activism, environmental activism, part of Zen communities. But in Japan at that moment, that wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't really know a lot about Zen, to be honest with you. Um, the people that uh-huh. I had listened to who give these Dharma talks are not, are not Zen Buddhists. Uh, okay. but, but one of the things you say in the book... Um, that I found a little bit refreshing from what I do know about it is you notice certain, and I don't know whether this is a new thing in Zen Buddhism or an old thing, but a certain anti-intellectualism that is a desire uh, or even a kind of um, an injunction not to think too much about things. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, uh, and it's called no thought. Right. Um, and it is the enlightened comportment right that the way of being in the world that is inspired by zen teachings which really go back to the taoist tradition in china is that um it's not just it's not an analytical skill that may not be missing altogether but it it is a certain deep composure and awareness a sense of things where you're your eyes are wide open, your mind is open, and you're attentive to the world, and you're not off lost in your head. Mm-hmm. And Zen Buddhism is about developing that composure and that way of being that is, um, isn't lost in headspace. Mm-hmm. Right? It is really um, very present, really. So when, you, when you're around the Zen master, you just feel the presence of this person. Mm-hmm. Um, they are profoundly present. They're looking right into you. Mm-hmm. And um, that is one of the great parts of Zen Buddhism. Uh, it, it can get carried away, though, and, uh, and end up losing the intellectual dimension of life, though, um, and that can be uh, a fault, um, that if it, you pretend that thinking, clear, cogent, coherent thinking isn't important, 
um, you're going to be really missing some important skills in life. Mm-hmm. But, if, but if I'm correct, and again, please correct me if I'm wrong, uh, yeah. the, 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 in Zen, you actually train to avoid conceptualization of things. And isn't this what happens when you read a Zen koan? Isn't that the kind of point of it that not That's makes right. sense? That's right. It doesn't make sense. So koan is this puzzle that came out of the mouth and verbiage of a Zen master at some point. And your task when you're given a koan as a puzzle is to get yourself back into the state of mind from which that odd paradoxical saying came in the first place. So whatever it was in the Zen master's mind who said that, get there. And uh, you can't think your way there. (laughs) It is beyond thinking. You've got to do much more than thinking. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it reminded me very much of something uh, I heard uh, early on in an AA meeting from, I think he must have been a Zen master, AA person or something. I called him Ponytail Bob. <laughs> ah. <laughs> Sounds like a Zen master. Bob Roshi, uh, and I—I was—we were at a big book study meeting, and we're studying the big book, and I'm, you know, full of being a professor. And I said, "Well, what exactly does it mean here when it says spirituality? What do we mean by spirituality?" And he looked at me and said, "We don't do that here." <laughs> That's great. You think too much. Yeah, we don't do that here. You can you go to the philosophy department for that. Right. <laughs> and it took me a long time to understand what he meant, but I, I, I think I, I finally got it. So yeah. for people who are listening and want to become enlightened, uh, this may be to put you on the spot, but what's the first step? I mean, how do you start to approach it? What, what do you do and what are the stages of it? Okay, well, um, first I have to deconstruct your question a little bit. <laughs> that there, um, there really can't be an it that is so clear that has the same set of stages for everyone. Now, Buddhists are tempted into that kind of thinking, but um, the book that I've written is really about thinking about enlightenment in contemporary settings. And so, as you might recall, it begins with thinking um, my title is copied from Immanuel Kant, mm-hmm. the German philosopher, whose essay, What is Enlightenment in the Era of Enlightenment in Europe, um, where enlightenment meant um, the maturity to come into your own, right? Don't be childish by um, just doing what the priests and the overlords tell you to do. Think for yourself, right? Learn mm-hmm. to be on your own, okay? So enlightenment is that, and it's all of these Buddhist elements and um, there are as many things to be enlightened about as, 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 as is imaginable. So um, there are, for Buddhists, there are some core elements, and um, and then enlightenment is really personalized on the basis of that. So um, fundamental is the kind of composure that comes from meditation in the the basic sense of calming, right? Just to calm yourself down and learn to be able to be present and to be conscious and not to be lost in your head. So um, that beginning element is in meditation is fundamental. And uh, it starts with just the being aware of your breath and just try to Try to be aware of your respiration as you inhale and exhale and inhale and exhale. And you find initially that you can't do it um, and that it's a skill that you learn over time to be able to concentrate in that way. But we do lots of things where we learn to concentrate, including reading and auto mechanics where we're, <laughs> tennis, where we're really concentrating. Um, and those are skills to be developed. Um, but the, the, the Buddhist one is to just do that in meditation and to gain that composure of being present and not being lost in thought. Okay, so, um, so other elements, well, um, there is, from my point of view, a deep, and from a Buddhist point of view, a deep ethical um, element where you recognize that you aren't a given, you aren't a set thing in life. You're an open question. And that everything you choose to do, everything you fail to choose to do, is sculpting you. You are your own work of art. And so you recognize that you're putting your life together. And every time you encounter the world or 
speak to others. Every time you do anything, you are building a life of a particular kind. And are you, and there's the question for everyone, are you deciding what kind of life you aspire to live and choosing to do what is leading towards that kind of life? Or are you just in default mode where you're just doing what you do and um, and nothing's really being chosen? So that kind of ethical decision-making, where ethical, um, in the, not in the sense of just morality, but in the sense of self-composition, self-sculpting of um, deciding what kind of life you will lead by choosing what you do from moment to moment, day to day, and month to month, and 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 leading your life that way, or, or practicing, where you're practicing certain kinds of behaviors and certain kinds of mental states. Um, those are fundamental. Um, do you want me to keep no, going? No, it's, 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 actually, it's actually very, very good. It, it, it would make the practice of Buddhism, I think, somewhat frustrating for some people because I think, I think it is frustrating for some people because the goal is somewhat uncertain. Uh, but, uh-huh. but, but, and you have to find it on your own, kind of in guidance or in, in, in association with a whole bunch of, uh, I find in association with a whole bunch of other people. Yeah. It's not something yeah. you do alone. Right. Right. So there is guidance, right? There's the guidance of the community if you're involved, or there's the guidance of writings which are issued from the community. And so, so I, I, um, I certainly don't mean to say it's so individual. It's very much in a, uh, community-based thing. You're always doing what you do and deciding what you do in connection to your family and your friends and your associates and, and so on. So, But it, it's important from my perspective and the perspective of this book, although not all Buddhists would agree on this point, that you recognize that you are a particular, unique person, right? You have capacities and you lack other capacities that are that are different in other people, and um, how you what you love and what you aspire to and what you're good at naturally will be different. And so to 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 realize that your task of self sculpting of building yourself as a work of art will be different. Um, even though much of it will overlap with others and that when you're in a community of tennis players or potters <laughs> or whatever, then you're, you're, you're with other people. You're doing particular things um, that will um, – you're building yourself along with them. But, um, but I like to maintain the openness of it. I think it's important not to harden the conception of enlightenment that it's a one-size-fits-all kind of mm-hmm. one-time realization, sure. um, but to see it as a maturation and an evolving and a conscious, intentional self-sculpting of openness to the world that is each of us will do in our own way, mm-hmm. even though there'll be lots of overlap in our various communities. Mm-hmm. Well, one one aspect of uh, this self sculpting or at least something to be aware of while you're doing it we haven't touched on this we don't have a lot of time left but i'd like to hear your thoughts on it is the notion of karma and as it was explained yes. to me once by somebody who liked to boil things down they said well what does karma mean it means that really you don't get away with anything you might think you do but you don't <laughs> right that's exactly right you don't get away with anything yeah yeah and um it may seem like um, you didn't get credit for doing that good thing yeah, sure. that yes, nobody acknowledged, but in fact, you did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so karma is a, a brilliant principle. It can be perverted in all kinds of ways. And, and my chapter in the book on karma is really about, uh, the, from my point of view, the best contemporary way to understand what karma means and how to use it as a building block in life and in the quest for enlightenment. But um, basic principle is um, whatever you do, including what you think and say and everything that you undergo in your life, is shaping you into a particular kind of person. Mm-hmm. And that that will always go on to the end of your life. And that you might not, on on the outside, get what you think are the 
just rewards or the negative rewards for what you did, but inside you did, right? Through the process of um, shaping yourself through your own acts. Every time you do something, um, you're shaping your mind in a certain way. You're becoming that kind of person. So when you're lying or when you're um, trying to be really honest, um, that act um, helps shape you in a little further into a liar or an honest person. And, um, and it sets, it begins to build patterns or ruts in our mind. And we all know this is true through our activities. We build ourselves into a certain direction. And that's what karma is. Karma is really that brilliant process of, um, self-shaping through our own actions. Mm-hmm. Much of it, though, we do unconsciously and we don't really choose. Um, and which, what we do is shaping us, but it just kind of happens. So to be freely choosing and to be deciding in advance on the basis of an image of enlightenment or what we aspire to be, that is the way to generate the kinds of karma that will do the, the, the best kind of transformation of your life. Mm-hmm. Well, Dale, uh, we've taken up uh, much of your time, and I really appreciate it. We've been talking with Dale S. Wright today about his book, What is Buddhist Enlightenment? Dale, I want to thank you for being on the show, first of all. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And let me say to everyone that listens to this podcast, thank you for listening to it, and I hope you tune in. I know people don't tune in anymore. I hope you download next week. Bye-bye. <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. <laughs> 